Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all. If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 15, we'll be beginning this great chapter in God's Word this morning. So if you've been with us for any time, we've been going through what many refer to as the upper room discourse, beginning all the way back in John chapter 13, we saw the Lord's public ministry come to an end. The people of Israel reject Him, and He takes His disciples into the upper room where He has these parting words with them, these great words of comfort before His coming departure, not only on the cross, but His ascension to the right hand of the Father. And we saw all the way back in John 13, Jesus picture what He's going to do for His disciples in washing their feet, picturing His perfect cleansing and washing of them, that they are indeed clean because of the Word that He has spoken to them. And we saw Judas kicked out from among the twelve, and so the eleven remain, and our Lord is coming to them, and He's preaching to them and speaking to them these words of comfort, these words of assurance. And we saw in this great chapter, John 14, where our Lord promises that He will not abandon them. He will not leave His people as orphans. He will come to them, that He will dwell in them by His Spirit. He will dwell with them and the Father. He will love them. He will, his Spirit will teach them all things, and He will give them His perfect peace. What a great chapter we just finished, and we come now to John chapter 15, where we see indeed another great chapter of God's Word. And as we go through the book of John, it's good for us to remember why John wrote his gospel. He tells us all the way in John chapter 20 why he wrote the book that he wrote. John's pretty great like this in 1 John. He also tells you why he writes that book. <laughs> so John, John helps us out, and he tells us why he wrote the things that he wrote. And he tells us in John chapter 20 that he's wrote these things so that we might believe. First, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the special anointed servant of the Lord, promised in the Old Testament that has come to save his people from his sins. But he's also written these things so that we might believe Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, and that by believing in Him and Him alone, we might have life in His name. And we've seen throughout John's gospel that Jesus reveals Himself to indeed be these things. He is indeed the eternal divine Son of God and nothing less. But we've also seen him reveal his messianic identity as the Christ, the promised one. And he's done this in several ways. We've seen the seven signs of John's gospel, these seven miraculous works that our Lord has done, revealing who he is, multiplying bread, showing himself to be the bread of life. He's raised Lazarus from the dead, showing himself to be the resurrection and the life. So we've seen it in these seven signs that John records for us in his gospel, but we'll see today that our Lord has also revealed himself in these famous I am statements found throughout John's gospel, seven to be exact. We've seen Jesus reveal himself, as we said, to be 
the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. In distinction from the earthly bread that only satisfies for a moment, Christ declares that he is the bread of life. He says in John that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And we saw a couple chapters ago that he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life that there's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in our passage the seventh and final I am statement of John's gospel, where Jesus declares to his disciples, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Identifying himself as the source of life and strength for his people. The one that communicates life to the branches and indeed bears fruit in his people as they abide in him, the true vine. But what we're going to see today in our passage is that Jesus uses this language of the true vine to pull on language from the Old Testament, that What our Lord is doing is showing himself to be the fulfillment of all that was pointed to in the Old Testament, that he's identifying himself as the true vine. And we'll also see that it is only those that are abiding and united to him by faith and faith alone that bear fruit and thereby evidence their union with him. But what we're also going to see in our passage is a sobering warning for those that would trust in themselves, in their own works, in their own abilities, and are not looking to the vine for life. We see in our passage a sober warning that judgment awaits those that would trust in themselves and reject the vine. So I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burnt. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace, thankful for your holy and infallible word by which you reveal to us the precious promises of the gospel and what our Lord has done for us. We pray this morning that as we think on these things and as we hear your word this morning, that we would come to hear and understand your word 
and rest upon it, not as the mere words of men, but as what they really are, the word of the living God. We pray that you would help us to see these things this morning, that you would illumine the eyes of our hearts, that we might see and understand what you have for us in your word, and that as we look to Christ this morning, we would find rest and hope for our souls in him. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three things this morning. In verse 1, we'll see the true vine. We'll look at verse 1 and we'll see the true vine. Secondly, in verses 2 through 5, we'll look at the abiding branches. And thirdly and finally, we'll see the unfruitful branches. So we see in verse 1, our, our Lord declares to his disciples these famous words when he stands up and says, I am the true vine. <laughs> I am the true vine. Notice, I think this is often misquoted, he doesn't just say, I am the vine. <laughs> he says, I am the true vine. That we've seen our Lord make these I am statements before. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheepfold. But notice that our Lord here adds this qualifier, I am the true vine, emphasizing distinction from and contrast to something else. This is not the first time we've seen our Lord do this, right? In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd, in distinction from the false shepherds, the, the hirelings that would seek to destroy God's people. He says, I am the good shepherd. We see in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the true bread, distinguishing himself from the manna, the worldly manna in the wilderness. He says, no, I am the true bread. And so we see this language used again in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. But the question this morning is, True in distinction from what? <laughs> True in contrast to what? Who or what is Jesus contrasting himself with? True compared to what? How are we to understand this metaphor of the vine? And as we've already alluded to this morning, we find the answer to this question in the Old Testament. We find the answer to this question in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm 80. That in the Old Testament, we see that the people of Israel are also described as a vine. They are also described as a vine. As we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 5, we see that the kingdom of Israel is depicted as a choice vine planted by the Lord in a vineyard, carefully constructed by the vine dresser. We see this in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. We see God has set the people of Israel on a hill. He has cleared it of stones. He's built a watchtower in it, showing that God has indeed set the people of Israel in the promised land, cleared the land of all their enemies, removing them from the land, and giving them his great blessings of the law and the prophets. And the purpose of this was so that they might obey him, so, they, so that they might bear much fruit. But we see in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 5 that instead of producing fruit, 
that this vine only produced wild grapes. We see that in verse 2. It says, I looked for it to yield grapes, but behold, it yielded only wild grapes. He goes on to say in verse 7 that the Lord looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. That even though God had given Israel every advantage, He had entered into covenant with them, they still disobeyed the Lord. They broke the covenant. And we see in Isaiah 5 that He curses them with briars and thorns. They failed to produce the true fruit that He looked for, and they are eventually exiled from the promised land, which Isaiah is alluding to in Isaiah chapter 5. But what's so fascinating about this is this, this is not the first time we've seen this picture in Holy Scripture. This might sound very familiar to some of us because this is what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden. God also placed Adam in the garden and gave him every advantage to bear fruit. He gave him power to keep his commandments and law. He entered into covenant with him, and yet Adam disobeyed the Lord. He broke and violated the covenant, and as we remember in Genesis chapter 3, he is cursed with thorns and thistles and exiled from the garden paradise. So what we see happening is in Isaiah chapter 5, this exile of the people of Israel is like a large-scale corporate retelling of what happened to Adam in the garden. The fancy word is a recapitulation of what happened to garden, what happened to Adam in the garden. Adam failed. Israel failed because of sin, and so they're exiled and kicked out. But what's so amazing is that we see even in the Old Testament it does not leave us in this place of despair, but we see this promise of restoration. And just like in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we see the promise of salvation and the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, so also in Isaiah chapter 27, the prophet looks forward to a day when the vineyard will be restored. As we read this morning, in that day, Leviathan, the great enemy of God's people, will be slain. <laughs> this twisting serpent is cast out and defeated. That the thorns and the curse from Isaiah chapter 5 are now gone. <laughs> Isaiah says in chapter 27 that the wrath is removed. I have no wrath. That the vineyard is now pleasant and bearing fruit. And we see this picture of hope, this promise of a future vineyard, hope in this vine pictured in Psalm chapter 80 as the Son of Man that is strengthened by the Lord. That even in the Old Testament, God promised a day when this vineyard would be restored, this vine would be renewed and planted and indeed bear much fruit. And so, this is why it's so amazing when our Lord stands up and declares, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Promised in the Old Testament, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. 
not only claiming to be the true vine that would indeed produce true fruit, but in a sense, our Lord is saying, I am the true Adam and I am the true Israel. That where Adam and Israel failed, our Lord will succeed. He's declaring, in a sense, I am the true and better Adam, not only the one that will defeat the serpent, the great Leviathan, and keep the covenant where Adam failed, but I will also take the wrath and curse of sin upon myself, suffering in the place of sinners. Jesus is saying, I am the true Israel planted by the Lord, the true vine, the pleasant vineyard that will indeed bear much fruit. The obedient son, the son of man of Psalm 80 that is made strong by the Lord, that where Israel failed, Christ, the true Israel, will succeed and will fulfill all the expectations of the heavenly vine dresser. That we could say it like this, that Christ is the fulfillment of all that Israel pointed to when he stands up and says, I am the true vine, that in Christ the type has given way to the antitype. The promise has given way to the fulfillment. The shadow has given way to the substance. And it's so important that we see this, brothers and sisters, as we come to this passage, this fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, because what Jesus will go on to say, it is only by being vitally connected to Him, united to Him, the true true vine, by faith that anyone can bear fruit. It is only by being vitally connected and united to Him, the true vine, that anyone can bear fruit. Not by being born into the people of Israel, not by being born a Jew or into the right family, or being a son of Abraham according to the flesh, but by being reborn by the Spirit into the family of God, by being a son of Abraham according to faith. Not by legalistic, white-knuckled obedience, but by trusting in the perfect obedience of the Son. Not by seeking to do works of the flesh, but by faith in Christ, accomplish work and abiding in Him. I like what one commentator said. He said, a paradigm shift has taken place. It is only by being rightly related to Christ, the true vine, that anyone can enjoy the status of being part of God's chosen and pleasant vine. That it is only by being united to Christ by faith and faith alone that anyone can enjoy the blessings of this covenant of grace. It is only in union with Him that one can indeed bear true fruit and evidence their true faith in Him. And that really leads us to our second point this morning, the abiding branches. The abiding branches. We see in our passage that it is only those branches that are abiding in Christ and united to Him by faith, deriving their life and strength from Him that will prove themselves to be His true disciples and indeed bear much fruit. We see this in verse 2 and in verse 5. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That it is only those in Christ by faith that are truly his disciples. It is only those that are vitally connected to the vine that will bear much fruit. And that apart from this union with him, this abiding in him, there is no hope. Apart from the Spirit's work of regeneration and giving new hearts to God's people, uniting them to Christ by faith, there is no hope. I like what one pastor said. He said, Jeremiah was not messing around about the promises of the new covenant. Ezekiel was not messing around about the promises of the new covenant, that this covenant would not be like the covenant made with the fathers, the covenant that they broke, that Adam and Israel failed. But this covenant, in this covenant, everyone will know the Lord. As we've already spoken about in John chapter 14, all will be taught by the Spirit savingly. They will have the law of God written upon their hearts. Or we could use the language of John chapter 15 that everyone is connected to the vine truly and savingly in this covenant. United and abiding by faith given new hearts. And in this covenant of grace, we see that obedience to the law and the bearing of fruit is not a condition for entering into the covenant or remaining in this covenant, but that obedience to the law and bearing much fruit is actually a blessing of this covenant. It, God saying, I will write my law upon your heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in all my ways. That this fruit spoken of in John chapter 15 is really everything that Adam and Israel failed to do, failed to produce, obedience to God and His commands and His law. But Christ is presenting Himself as the true vine that will produce fruit perfectly in his perfect obedience to God's law at every point, never failing to produce this fruit that God requires. And that for the branches, it is only by being vitally connected to him, the true vine, that one can bear true fruit. It's so important that we understand this this morning, brothers and sisters, because I think we so often get this backwards in our Christian life. That this fruit that our Lord mentioned in John chapter 15 is not something that is produced by our own strength or by our own ability so that we might somehow get into the vine. Rather, it is produced because we are already connected to the vine. That's why Jesus can say what He says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That all those who are in Christ by faith and by faith alone are connected to the vine. They are abiding in Him and He promises that they will indeed bear much fruit. That this is the great promise of salvation for all God's people, both Old Testament and New Testament saints. It is not on the basis of works 
that this fruit is born, but by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. But as we see that this, in our confession, it so clearly states that this faith is never alone, but is always accompanied by these saving graces, and as we could say in the language of John 15, by this bearing of fruit. That we are saved indeed by faith and faith alone, but our faith is never alone. That's why Jesus says in verse 2 that every branch that does bear fruit, he also prunes, cutting away that which is worldly and fleshly, that which is taking life away from the true fruit. Many of you know my wife really enjoys houseplants. We have probably 30 plus different houseplants in our home. And this pruning is part of this work, right? As, as plants are growing, you're trying to water them properly, trying to make sure they get enough sun. But one of the things that you need to do is to make sure that you are pruning these plants so that the, 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 the branches that are indeed bearing fruit can have the life that they need. You're cutting away that which is unhelpful and worldly in a sense. Everything that is not contributing to the bearing of fruit is cut off. And we can say that this is the purpose of our Lord's pruning. It's so that we might bear more fruit, that as the, our Lord prunes us, his people, we are, indeed, we are indeed in him, and he cuts away everything in us that is worldly or f- fleshly. And even though this pruning may prove to be difficult at times and painful, we know it is for the ultimate purpose of God sanctifying us and indeed bearing much fruit in us. That even though this discipline of the Lord is painful, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is the pruning of our Lord, so that we might bear indeed much fruit. But we also see in our passage that there are branches that do not bear fruit. There are branches that are taken away and removed. And as we see in verse 6, we see a sobering reality of these branches that are thrown into the fire and burned. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the unfruitful branches. The unfruitful branches. We see in this verse, the sobering reality of false branches or unfruitful branches. We saw it at the beginning of verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We see in this passage that there are some who, though they may appear that they are connected to the vine, may appear that they are in Christ, will prove that they never truly were. They will show themselves to be false, unfruitful branches. But how do we understand this language of our Lord, this branch that is in Him and yet taken away? Well, many of us might be familiar with the argument of the Arminians, right, that says they would go to this passage as proof that true Christians can lose their salvation. They would deny the perseverance of the saints. They would say that this, this text proves that someone can be in Christ 
and yet lose their salvation. But we're very familiar with John chapter 10, where Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hands, right? This is the eternal security that God's people have. And so God's word cannot contradict God's word. And so this can't be what this passage means. A less known view um, that you may have heard of is something called federal vision, this false gospel that would use this passage to argue that some Christians that are united to Christ can indeed be eternally lost because of their lack of covenant faithfulness. In this view, they turn the gospel of faith into a gospel of faithfulness, a gospel of faith into a gospel of works. And we know that this is not true because the whole passage is about how Christ is the true vine. He kept the covenant where we fail. He was faithful. And so it can't be what that means. But how do we understand this? And this passage sadly has confused many and led to very many strange views of what's going on here. But the, the questions are legitimate. How can a people be related to Christ and yet taken away? How can a branch be connected to him and yet removed because it does not produce fruit? And I think that it's extremely helpful when we see and understand this language of typology, this promise and fulfillment, as we see that the primary fulfillment of this passage comes in the people and the kingdom of Israel. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, we see in verse 33 that Jesus tells the people of Israel a parable, this parable of the tenants. And in this parable, a master of the house, a vine dresser, plants a great vineyard. And we read in verse 33, Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Isaiah chapter 5? And he says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, referring to the prophets, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent them his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so Jesus turns to the, the people and says to them, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Listen to these words. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. That this language 
from Matthew 21 is also in John chapter 15. This language of vine and vineyard, this fruit, this unfruitful branch that is taken away. And so we see that Israel, related to Christ according to the flesh, is indeed these tenant workers that our Lord describes. They were leased to work the vineyard and bring forth the Messiah, the promised son of Abraham that would bless the nations. But instead of accepting Christ, the true vineyard, the true vine, and the beloved Son, and bearing much fruit by believing in Him, we see that instead they reject Him and kill Him. And so Jesus declares to them that the kingdom is taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruit. That our Lord is clear that the kingdom of God has always been about the Messiah, not a physical people group. The kingdom has always been about Christ and His people by faith, not His people according to the flesh. That Israel is proving themselves to be this unfruitful branch, this unfruitful vine that is taken away and cut off for unbelief, as we read in Romans And that Christ is indeed the true vine that bears fruit and his people in him by faith. But this passage also has a secondary fulfillment in all that would seek to come to Christ on the basis of their works, their works of the flesh and not by faith in him. That all those that would seek to come to Christ not on the basis of faith, but on the basis of their own works, these works of the flesh, they too will show themselves to be cut off. We've seen this with the person of Judas already, all the way back in John chapter 13. Judas proves himself to be an unfruitful branch. That all those that hold on to their works or their fleshly connection to Christ, but reject Him as the true vine, prove that they are dead branches and will indeed be taken away. That we see in this passage, no one can say that I'm saved because I'm a son of Abraham. I'm saved because I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm saved because of the family I was born into or the church I attended. Look how much fruit I have. God must save me. Rather, it is everyone that is trusting in Christ that will show themselves to be true branches. And everyone not united to the vine will indeed perish. I love what Pastor Michael Beck said. He said, Everyone born in Adam, both Jew and Gentile, who reject the true vine and look to their own fruit and their own works will indeed suffer the eternal punishment of hell. That this is what our Lord is referring to in verse 6. And this is really, in one sense, the fate of everyone that is under the covenant of works in Adam. Unable to keep the law perfectly, unable to produce the fruit that the Lord requires, this is all of our fates in Adam. And so as we step back from this passage this morning and contemplate these things, the first thing that we need to see this morning is the call to abide in Christ. The call this morning is to abide in Christ, that we must abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. 
Because apart from union with Him by faith, we see in our passage there is only wrath and curse. That judgment awaits all those who are not found in the true vine, in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a book that's very popular called Heaven is for Real, right? There's a probably less popular book out there somewhere called Hell is for Real, right? Our Lord alludes to the reality that hell is real, that God's judgment is real. There is a judgment coming on all those that are not found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our sin, we have all failed to produce the fruit that God requires of us. But we see in this passage that Christ is presenting Himself as the true vine and calling us not to abide in ourselves, not to abide in our own works, but in Him. To be united to Him by faith. To derive our life and our strength from Him. To have fellowship and communion with Him by the Spirit. Not some mystical experience where we're always questioning, am I abiding in Christ or am I not? Not some legalistic obedience where we are constantly questioning our salvation. But this abiding is rather receiving Christ and resting upon Him alone as He's revealed in the Gospel. That sadly, this passage has caused much doubt and fear in genuine believers who fear they might not persevere. Right? They look at this passage, what if I'm cut off? What if I'm not abiding perfectly? But we see in this passage, far from undermining the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or proving that true believers can lose their salvation, this passage actually points us to God's sovereignty in the work of salvation. That as our confession says, God's people can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall preserve to the end. But as we read this morning, It's because this depends not upon our own free will, but upon God's sovereign decree of election because of the the abiding of His Spirit. But this does not mean that there will not be false professors, false branches that are found in Christ's church, visible church. Our confession is very clear in chapter 26, paragraph 3, that the purest churches under heaven are still subject to mixture and error. As we sing in the Church's One Foundation, there are false sons in her pale. There are those that profess faith in Christ, but are not true Christians. There are false branches that do not bear fruit and evidence and prove that they were never truly united to the vine. Maybe to be cut off by church discipline, or as we read in Matthew 13, taken away by the cares and persecution of the world. Or we could use the language of 1 John, they went out from us because they were not of us. And we see in this passage that the visible church should be made up of those that are evidencing their union with Christ by this bearing of fruit. But we see lastly and finally not just our need to abide in Christ, and not just the promise of the Lord's perseverance in our salvation, but we see in this passage the source and ground of our true assurance. 
We see in this passage the source and ground of our true assurance that we can be tempted as Christians to look to other sources of assurance in this life. We can be tempted to think as Christians that our source of true assurance comes from us. Our ability to bear fruit, our obedience to Christ's commands, counting up our fruit and hoping desperately that it's enough to somehow keep us in the vine. But what we see in this passage is that true assurance of salvation doesn't come from us, but from the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, from our union with him by faith, that Christ is indeed the true vine that bears much fruit, the better Adam, the true Israel who keeps the covenant. But he's not only the true vine, he's also the one who endured the winepress of God's wrath for us on the cross, drinking to the dregs the judgment and the hell that our sin deserved, so that in him there might be no condemnation. Or to use the language of Isaiah 27, there is no wrath because those are in Christ, have been saved. We so often tend to think that, how can God be (laughs) my Redeemer? And we fear that He'll also be our condemner. We walk around so often in the Christian life afraid that our Lord is ready to just cut us off from the branch. But I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, it is impossible for Christ to be both the Redeemer and the condemner of the same persons. So perfect is his pardon that our sin has ceased to be. He has put away our sin forever by the perfect sacrifice of himself. He endured the winepress of God's wrath for us. He endured the curse upon the cursed tree so that we might have no curse and no wrath, so that we might be found in him. And because we are united to him, we see in this promise, in this passage, the promise that we will indeed bear much fruit. This is the evidence of God's work in us. God will work in us to bear much fruit. But not only that, he will also prune us so that we might bear more fruit. That we have the promise in this passage that the Lord will indeed prune his people as the sovereign vine dresser, cutting away that which is worldly and fleshly, our self-reliance, our pride, those things in us that take away from our fruit. He cuts them away so that we might rely on him more, so that we might indeed bear more fruit, knowing all along that he will not prune us or discipline us beyond what we can bear but it is out of love for us as his dear children. But maybe some of us are thinking this morning, what if I'm not bearing enough fruit? What if I'm not bearing the fruit that I think I need? I believe in Christ, but I'm just not seeing the fruit that I once saw. And I think that in our flesh, 
we can think the answer to this question of lack of fruit is to just try harder. Dig deeper. Be better. This kind of legalistic obedience where if we just tried harder, if we just beat ourselves up enough, then we will be able to bear enough fruit. But if there is no fruit, the answer is not to just try harder to produce more fruit but rather the answer is to abide in the true vine. That it's only by faith in Him, receiving and resting upon Christ alone, that we can indeed bear true fruit. Looking to Him with the eyes of faith, knowing that in Him we have all the life and strength we need. So this morning, brothers and sisters, let's look to Christ, let's look to the true vine, let's be found in Him this morning, and let's abide in in our great Savior. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we we come before you now and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for these great words of our Lord promising us that he is indeed the true vine. That where Adam failed and where we failed, Christ did not fail that He indeed is the one that produces much fruit. And in Him, we have the promise that we too will bear fruit in Him, doing good works and seeking to obey His commands and law. Not to try to earn life from Him, not to try to keep ourselves in the vine, but because we are already in the vine. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to rest in Christ, to abide in him by faith, knowing that it's only by uniting ourselves to him that we have true life and true hope. Assure our hearts this morning where we're weak, strengthen us where we're frail, and if we are proud this morning, would you humble us? Would you help us to see that it is only in you that we have life? And it is only in you that we can bear fruit, not of ourselves, so that no one may boast. Help us, Lord, to see these things. And as we come now to the supper, would you strengthen us and nourish us by your means of grace and conform us to the image of your Son. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.